Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we have a special guest today, the Reverend Dr. Greg Strawbridge of All Saints Church in Lancaster. Yeah, it's actually, an, are you in Akron or something? Yeah, we're just north of Lancaster, actually. And you uh, have been a pastor there for how long, Greg? Well, since 2001, at the end of 2001, I came up. So how many years is that? Well, getting to be quite a few, more than a decade. And you, you're one of the few people I know that's kind of in a high sacramental reformed church that has Amish people that go to it. That's, that's right. That's yeah, very interesting. Well, yeah, you know, um, Greg, again, thanks for being with us today. And a couple episodes ago, we talked about um, one way to, one analogy for what's uh, how you observe changes within Christianity as being kind of a, a mutant gene. In other words, there's adjustments, there's changes, certain doctrines rise to the top, um, certain nuances are changed. And that can sometimes lead to distortions of Christianity, but it also can be a way to understand how the faith adjusts from from age to age. Um, you know, I, I think what you're doing at your place is both really, you know, wonderful and from a ministry perspective and, and how you're impacting both your community, your world, and how you've sent out, you know, lots of other leaders. But I think it's a, it's kind of a unique um way of finding a space in the current American Christian uh, climate. So I, I thought it would be interesting for us just to hear a little bit of your own theological DNA and, and how you got to where you are and, and some of your reflections on, you know, what your place is in the current American theological scene and church scene. In other words, what kind of mutant are you? This is like the, the X-Men. Like we're like Professor yeah. <laughs> X and Cyclops coming, you know, we've found a new mutant. We're analyzing your powers. Yes, think, I've got alien well, DNA. You know, like to quote X Files from last see, night. See, yeah, see me, I'm more like we found uh, a toe joint of some ancient dinosaur. So <laughs> that's that's how I approach this. But anyway, so well, it's it's funny you should mention dinosaurs because one of the ways I would classify what we're about, if you, if you think about the general sense of how do you respond to the movement from post modernity, how do you respond to the fact that we are in a context where people are questioning values and identity. One of the responses, there's been a lot of responses, but one of the responses among faithful people, believing people, has been what I would call the Paleolithic yeah. approach, <laughs> which is, yeah. you know, getting back to the getting back to the future, getting back to the historic church. And that's kind of where we are. I have an example of this. A few years ago, we had just started doing regular sing, psalm sings, where we take psalms uh various versions of psalms, some metrical psalms, some out of the Reformation, uh, some kind of earlier music psalms, and sing and practice and, and use this in our worship. So, you know, if you go back to the 1500s, the music that was being sung by Calvin and Luther was not like the music that we sing today. It didn't sound the same. So the original version of A Mighty Fortress has a lot of syncopation in it. You know, it has a lot more rhythm to it. And I introduced this as psalm sing. This is probably about 2002 or three. I really thought I was going to lose my job at that point because <laughs> people were responding. They were saying, what in the world are we doing here singing this music? This, is, this doesn't sound right. You know, this doesn't sound like it should sound. What's wrong with the regular version of A Mighty Fortress that you hear in every other church? And so uh, what I realized is, you know, when you go back to 
again, that, that era, Renaissance-style music, you get a lot more dynamic movement, and it's just, it doesn't quite end the same way. It doesn't have the same resolutions. And it's, it's very fascinating from a musical point of view. After we did it for a while, everybody loved it. It just took a little bit of time for people to get out of their, you know, the way they heard music, the way they heard the sounds of it. And so, but one of the guys who was actually an organist, kind of an Anglican organist type, he came up to me afterwards and he said, this is paleosalmody. This is terrible. This is terrible paleosalmody. Why are we digging up these rocks from, you know, the past? <laughs> Luckily, most of the congregation sounds like they were suckers for syncopation. Well, it's also funny that an organist would say that because they certainly are an endangered species. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, so, uh, but, but that kind of gives you a glimpse yeah. into the idea, which is, okay, let's, let's get back to some things that the church has been doing for the last couple of millennia. Let's not act like our church started in 1983, and let's you know, begin to think you know, we're connected the historic church. And that's one of the responses we have to current, you know, current issues, uh, again, a post-modern kind of response. Where would you, I, again, this is such a broad question. Someone asked me this question the other day and uh, they got a much longer response than they wanted, but uh, where would you put your, <laughs> I still don't think they were satisfied, but uh, place yourself a little bit on the theological landscape of American Protestant Christianity. We have the true faith. Oh, well, that's always easy. Yeah. 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 So we're, we're, we're the, just the Bible. That's what we just, have. Just, just the, the Bible. Bible. Yeah. No tradition. My hope is built nothing. on nothing less than Schofield's Notes and Scripture Press. <laughs> um, we, we came into existence with, uh, with a strong affinity to being in the Reformed and Presbyterian setting, but we were in we were the church was planted in 1999 just before i got there um i was the first pastor that came in and there was a strong sense of we believe in the reformed faith we we would hold to something like the westminster confession of faith or various other reformed documents the three forms of unity and then our communion of churches that was developing at the time now it's about 100 strong across the world are all churches that are coming from a very loosely affiliated reformational point of view. So no one is a very stickler, you know, strong stickler for every semicolon and colon in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And yet we do, you know, embrace that sort of um reformational outlook. What, so a lot of churches What's a colon have, between friends, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's the semicolons that really get you there. But it it it's the case that in our churches, our our communion of churches, um everyone would basically ascribed to a kind of Reformation outlook, but it's very, I would say, very warm and uh, not very um, rigid. We've been influenced by um, some other things that have happened. I think we've been influenced by the liturgical renewal movement, and then that's been kind of filtered through some of the people that uh, have taught on that and, and been uh, sources. Uh, men like uh, Peter Lighthart and James Jordan and Jeff Myers would be some folks that we've a lot of us have been influenced by, and that, that pretty much is, if you look at all three of those guys, they're all Lutheran. They all came from a Lutheran background, and then they became Presbyterians or Reformed in some way. And so their Lutheran understanding of worship very much affected them. And they saw, of course, a more deeper, I'd say a deeper biblical basis for historic Christian liturgy. And unlike a lot, I mean, unlike most Presbyterian and even most Protestant churches in America, everyone in 
your communion, right, which is correct, the Confederation of Reformed and Evangelical Churches. Uh, communion of Reformed and Evangelical communion Churches. Communion of, yeah. of I, why did I think Confederation? I, I, I was thinking Well, we, we used to have that. That used to be the first C, and we, we changed that in 2011. I think it started in 2008. I don't think the change finally happened until 2011, just because we didn't want that to be a confusing term. Actually, we are a confederation in the governmental sense, like we are a, a group that has a kind of equal collegial relationship that is a confederation. But then, you know, today, if you say the word confederation, that immediately means a rebel flag and so forth. And so that was part of the reason why we adjusted the name. And communion is a very good expression of what we are, too. And, and all your churches, right, would celebrate communion weekly. Yep. And all of your churches are uh, what the technical term theologically would be pedo communion people they like all your churches would be okay with communion or most of them would be okay with communing baptized um small children yeah most of them and actually here's a very anomalous thing so this this group it started with independent churches it wasn't a break from a previously existing denomination so it was a bunch of independent churches that started got together and then became, you know, formed a more perfect union, if you will, <laughs> um, and uh, or maybe a less perfect union. But it wasn't. It wasn't kind of a breach from some. You know, it wasn't a continuing church from some right. fallen apostate group or anything. So you like didn't. That. You didn't start by saying no to something. Yeah. yeah, we started by saying let's let's get together. Yeah. And I was not there the first meeting or so. I can't. I think I was at the second meeting of the third meeting of the of the of the communion of churches there. And uh, at the time, it was, again, a very loose affiliation, working together, coming together. It was one presbytery. Finally, in 2008, we separated into seven presbyteries. We're in the Augustine Presbytery. And um, we, as, as we came together, the first crop of churches that came in were churches that were evangelical Baptistic churches becoming Reformed in their outlook theologically and more historically minded. So at the ground level, we said, you can be a Baptist or a Pado baptist You just need to sign on to some historic Reformed confession. So the London Baptist Confession of 1689 is also a legitimate confession yeah, it's, to it's a Calvinist, subscribe yeah, to. It's a Calvinistic confession. Yeah, yeah. In, in our communion of churches. So there are a handful of churches. I mean, I'm thinking I can only name two that fit under this, but there may be more that that's their confession of faith. The one thing that we do require, though, is if you're baptized in a church, you have to be able to be admitted by your baptism. So if I got one of my children who was baptized in infancy goes to one of those churches, which has a 1689 Baptist confession, they need to be admitted to membership without being rebaptized. So in some ways, that's a little bit of a cheating thing because uh, true blue Baptists, they really do want to practice rebaptism right. for people that were not baptized by their specific mode and at you know at some age of confession capacity but um that's worked pretty well for us most of the time people come into the you know in, into the churches and if they've come from a baptistic background very quickly they begin to interact and they soften on some of those things that's what we've seen over the years and you know, frankly, we're 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 definitely attracting more people that are of the Pado Baptism, Pado Communion, you know, ilk. Yeah, I mean, you guys kind of carry the torch for 
paedo communion in the, in the evangelical world. I mean, a lot of the literature for that movement comes from, and you edited a book about paedo communion, yeah. right? And one about paedo baptism, communion, which, yeah. for people thinking through issues of baptism, by the way, I would just say that it's a, the book you have in the case for uh, covenant baptism, is it? Covenantal infant baptism. Covenant, yeah. um, Peter Lightheart has an essay in there. You have an essay. I mean, it's a, it's a really fine collection of essays that I would recommend to anybody. Yeah, that's that's published by Presbyterian and Reformed. And then a few years later, I did the case for Covenant Communion, which is now at wordmp3.com. You can get it there. It was published by Athanasius Press. It's gone out of print, but there is an electronic version of it if somebody wants it. It's a good book. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to do some kind of uh, revised edition in the next uh, year or so and try to get some other folks involved it, you're, you're it publishing with Athanasius. i just want everybody to know bill and i will only publish with arian presses <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah i guess no but that's funny well if uh i mean i know this is very diverse but what's the give, give me a profile of the kind of person who finds a home uh worshiping in your in your in your communion yeah well a lot of the early connection and the reason why i think there was a, an explosion of growth of both the churches and other institutions affiliated is because um douglas wilson who's currently the presiding minister of our council like a general assembly council if you will um doug had been involved in raising up a school kind of along the lines of the classical model he had been influenced by an essay by dorothy sayers and so they started this in the 80s and it you know continued and did very well and then he wrote a book in the crossway series um that uh, was called the rediscovering the lost tools of learning and that that really popularized the movement this was in about 1992 i was doing a doctorate in education and philosophy at the time and so that's when i uh connected to it and i thought this is exactly what i think is right you know for for education in 1993 the association of classical and christian schools was uh, inaugurated, and then all across the country, schools began to be formed or be <clears throat> reformed according to that kind of model. So that gave a lot of um, national airplay, I guess, to that movement. So many people were involved in that, but of course, in many cases, such an educational community also needs a you know a church, a a faith community, to really sustain itself. And so at the time in the in the mid 90s when this was really growing fast there were not a lot of churches that were very you know consistent with the values of that approach to education so that i think prompted quite a bit of growth quite a bit of independent churches trying to figure out how we could do this and so forth and so i was involved in that into the late 90s and then um you know ended up being called to such a community so this our community is one of these examples where a few people had started a school here in Lancaster called Veritas Academy. And about the same time they started the school, they began to kind of work to see if a church could be formed. And then we were we were formed in 1999, and the school continues to this day. And so a lot of the people in our school and a lot of people in our church overlap in various ways. So there's teachers and administrators and stuff in our church. So there's been kind of a an educational movement plus plus church community, and that's happened repeatedly across across the country. Not only Christian day schools type thing, but also homeschool co-ops and just people that were 
homeschooling with that in mind, with that kind of direction in mind of trying to do a, a strong Christian worldview approach to education and then to tailor that toward a more, let's say, historically minded, more classically minded approach. And you guys tend to be a pretty theological, theologically muscular, or maybe robust, I don't know how to say it. But I mean, there are some sort of movements. We that, can bench press 500. Exactly. You can bench press all of, all of the Summa and the church dog. You know. um, we never put Karl Barth on the bar, though. We never lift him up. It's yeah, just, that's it's like, always it's like metrics. Like, it's like, that would be like a metric dumbbell. You know? No, we're only in standard. Uh, you know, it, and I say that because there are certain movements that are really less theological. I mean, you're less into pursuit of the love of God with the mind and critical reflection. Is it fair to say that pretty much across the board, most of your pastors are pastor scholar types who are interested in study and reflection and, and, and things like it, that? That's a really interesting question because, on the one hand, we did not opt in our ordination standards and in the nature of the case with many independent churches in the first place. We didn't have some sort of standard like, well, you've got to have an MDiv from a Reformed seminary or whatever. So, you know, typical Reformed denominations require you to have at least the equivalent, if not an actual, you know, degree from an approved seminary. So that was out the window from day one because most of the pastors in the original context were trained, you know, in an apprenticeship context or just in the nature of the, you know, case. You know, Doug Wilson's story is he was leading guitar, leading music with a guitar. The pastor left, and then they said, "We want you to be the pastor." And so that's yeah. how he got into. That's how, that's how that's how I became a young life staff person. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, was playing so, guitar, and, and the leader left. All I got yeah, is a red and, guitar, and three chords, and the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a couple of different stories, you know, of different folks like that. That, that that's where they, they started in ministry, but they didn't, you know, go the ordinary pastoral route. And then, as it turns out, over many years, they became that. And so that's very, very common in our situation. So on the one hand, we don't have a lot of guys with MDivs. Like in our presbytery, I was looking for someone to be a mentor for one of a, a student in another church, and I was going through all the different guys. And I think that there's probably, of 15 churches in our presbytery, probably three of those guys have MDivs. A couple of them have MAs you know, from a seminary. And then many of them don't have a graduate degree. So that's true on the one hand. On the other hand, because we've been so aligned with educational, you know, Christian worldview stuff, most of our churches are very strongly committed to some form of Christian education. It just drives you in the direction of being more, you know, interested in knowing theology and knowing history and understanding, you know, the classics and applying, you know, where we are. Uh, in terms of Western civilization development to understanding, you know, the signs of the times. So there's there's a strong affinity for educational things in our group of churches. You know, um, the term of a Christian worldview. I, I would like to think that you know all of my opinions are informed by my Christian worldview, and to me that can be a very dynamic, progressive, uh, embracing kind of thing. You know, some people, when they hear Christian worldview, and uh, you think of flat earthers, um, and you know, I don't mean that, you know, in any kind of judgmental way, but maybe it would be helpful just to qualify a little bit. What, uh, what 
what you mean by when you say Christian worldview and, you know, do you see that as an open universe kind of thing or a closed universe kind of term? Yeah. I don't believe in a flat earth. Uh, if that's any <laughs> consolation. I just want to say neither of you guys have been in space. Okay. Who knows? You know I mean? We, it could yeah. be a conspiracy. Well, but I was born on a hill in West Virginia and looked around from up there. <laughs> That's an interesting point because um, I'm not familiar with people who would hear Christian worldview and think of kind of fundamentalism. In my experience, Christian worldview was the antithesis to fundamentalism. Right. No, um, I understand it. It, yeah. it was sort of Francis Schaeffer giving us a read on Western civilization, not all of which I would agree with now, but you know, helping understand you know how we got here in the midst of modernity and the developing uh, postmodern kind of philosophical movements that somewhat followed his teaching but coming out of seminary in the early in the late 80s into the early 90s and then doing my doctoral work a christian world and life view in the kuyperian mindset you know the dutch um prime minister abram kuyper who developed this who gave the stone lectures at princeton and so forth you know he's talking about not one square inch of reality you know that where jesus doesn't say this is mine so it's christ's lordship over every area of life put it this way sort of um in in the more fundamentalist background that i was i grew up in that i was aware of there's a strong sacred secular dichotomy there's a strong sense in which what it means to be a good christian is to become a pastor or a missionary right. um spiritual pietism is set apart so christian world and life view from my experience now in these many years, is the antithesis to that, to a bifurcated worldview, to a pietistic understanding of Christian faith, and rather is every area of life is to be submitted to Christ and be lived to his glory, which means, of course, you can be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, and do that to the glory of God. And God uses all of these things because his kingdom is extensive, is coextensive with reality, not simply spiritual reality, but with reality. And that's very much a Kuyperian version of it. Now, of course, there's Reformed people today that would opt for what's called the Reformed Two Kingdoms of you, which very much denies this idea of Christ's lordship over every area of life. I would say in our communion of churches, everyone would be very content with Kuyper. Uh, they would not want to, you know, avoid saying that Christ's lordship affects how you do your work as a plumber, or how you do your work as a doctor, um, and of course, it obviously affects how you do your work as a as a minister or an educator. And you know, what's interesting is I think on the American Protestant landscape, you find the unreflective sort of critical Christian worldview, both in fundamentalist churches and in mainline Protestant. Oh, churches, absolutely. Where you have yeah. people. In Episcopalian or Presbyterian Church USA, yeah, a plague on both your houses, as they say yeah, in Dutch, right? Yeah, you have people that are fairly well educated, and you know, read the New York Times, but their level of thinking about faith has absolutely no sophistication. Like, I mean, it's really, right. yeah. you know, it's it's it's, and so you have this lack of Christian and theological imagination, both in fundamentalism and more and more in liberal Protestantism. And I don't mean to make it sound like. There's a Christian answer to everything that's simplistic. That's not the case. No. There's many difficult and complex things to work out. So you don't go, I've got a, you know, I think Christ's lordship matters in every area of life. Therefore, I have an immediate answer to every plaguing problem that shows up in medical science and 
history and, you know, scientific endeavor and politics, you know, of course not. I mean, but I do believe that there's some basic foundations that, that do work. And then there's some things where we have to be charitable and work with different points of view and acknowledge the fact that there's just a lot more to do. There's just a lot more study to do. I, I think the problem is we haven't really applied all of scripture to all of life very well. But, yeah. but you guys, I mean, is it fair to say, because you, you would be in the evangelical landscape, the kind of conservative evangelical reform landscape. But what I think what separates you guys, and you're alluding to this, is, and this is what I've learned. I mean, I've, I've learned a, a ton from people like Peter Lightheart and Jim Jordan and yourself and Rich Lesk. Is it fair to say that I think one, a couple of things that mark you off differently, even in that evangelical reform world, as you said, the way you guys approach the Christian view of life is rigorously biblical. And I think Peter Lightheart and James Jordan are doing some of the finest exegesis and theological reflection on scripture in any camp um, in, in, in the United States. And also it, this kind of wedding that to a kind of sacramental liturgical thing. So a movement away from, I think a lot of the Kuiper stuff, it, it turns Christianity into kind of a philosophical worldview where you guys try to kind of shape people into a Christian understanding of the world more through the language and symbol world of the Bible and through the church's historic rites. And you guys are also very ecumenically minded, like consciously so. And I, that, I don't see that in a lot of the Reformed and evangelical world. Many times, the Reformed, uh, the Reformed part of the vineyard, if you will, become very, very critical of everyone right next to them. And so we've seen this, for example, in the last 10 years with various controversies that have arisen, where the critique really comes, you know, even calling people heretics and so forth, comes from people that are just like a millimeter away theologically from the other <laughs> people. You know, like, for example, the first person who called uh, the Federal Vision uh, teaching heresy back in 2000. And can you define two, that for our listeners, the Federal Vision? Yeah, Federal Vision. Uh, no, I hate to define it. It's, it was just, there was a conference that was had. It had that title. And four speakers came together. They all said something to the effect of, we should get back to an objective understanding of our relationship with God. Uh, there's an objective covenantal dimension. Right. We should consider people that are baptized Christians. We should, you know, think that efficacy happens in the sacraments and so forth. There was a number of other teachings on it, but a number of people that um, responded to it, and it's just it's it's so undefined. I mean, it's just become such a morass of poor definitions that um, one of my friends who's been a leader in that thought. Uh, Rich Lusk said to me a few months ago, he's like, I said, how should I respond if somebody asked me about federal vision? And he said, I would say I completely repudiate the ideas of federal vision. <laughs> <And I'm> like, <laughs> Rich Lusk, you're saying that? And he goes, yes, because it's so undefined anyway. But just my point was the first person who responded and called that, you know, that teaching heresy was a guy who was post-millennial, <laughs> you know, subscriber to the Westminster Confession, strongly, you know, from the theonomic point of view, you know, like every single, you know, any level of ticks you could put on the chart to define a person theologically, any person outside of our group could not tell the difference between him and the guy he was critiquing. Like he had the same theological perspectives, but suddenly, you know, this is radical. So, and the that, PCA put Peter Lehart on heresy trial for being yes. associated with, and Peter beat the rat. 
That's <laughs> unbelievable. Which is impressive. But let me ask this question. I'm, well, yeah, because can I say I, one more thing ahead. about yeah. that, though? Because yeah. what I was trying to get to was to say, when you look at us in the Reformed world, a lot of times the Reformed folks break down. So uh, John Frame has a wonderful article where he talks about Machen's warrior children. And he basically <laughs> says, since the time of the formation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you know, in the, in the 20s and 30s, since that time, there have been 13 major controversies in the conservative, Reformed, and Presbyterian world. And, you know, this is like one every, you know, few years. I mean, this is amazing. And he, and he basically just says, this is a sin. You know, this is just a Reformed sin. We're going after one another. We're not distinguishing between. And, of course, what happens is every one of these controversies become at the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. Yeah, right? yeah. I think there's more than 13 in that article. I think it's more like 20-something. <laughs> I, 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 well, I, I it might have. But anyway, yeah, Machen's Warrior Children, you can check it out. But, but here's the thing about the CRC. I think we've learned from that. We've said, okay, look, you know, that's wrong. That's a sin that we have. And so I would say there's a strong um, ecumenical spirit within the CRC to work with other churches, to not, you know, draw lines about being reformed or not, to not, you know, try to, you know, remove people because they're, quote, not reformed enough and that, that kind of thing. I mean, we still have to have some doctrinal standard, and, and that's true. But I don't think the spirit of our churches, I don't think you would hear in many of our churches the kind of criticism toward other evangelicals. I think you would end up hearing more calling for unity, loving, showing that. At least, certainly that's what we're preaching. I, I guess I shouldn't say you wouldn't hear it at all. Um, that always comes through at some point. But, and you're one of the yeah. only movements where one of the leading theologians at evangelical conferences responds to critiques by referencing the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can you tell that story quick, Greg? Yeah, well, we had at, at the Evangelical Theological Society Eastern Region, I was I'm secretary treasurer of that. We had Peter Lighthart, who was a guest speaker. And so our upcoming, and one of our vice presidents, Fred Smith from Liberty University, we end up going out to dinner. This is a tradition. We go out to dinner after the conference. So we're out to dinner at this nice restaurant, and it's Peter Lighthart and Fred Smith. Fred Smith is, I would say, as as Southern Baptist as you can be, you know, without being, um, you know, so, without being someone out of the you know 1700s, you know, in a farmhouse. He says or something. there are two kinds of worship cultures out there in the evangelical world. There's high church liturgical. And happy clappy. And sadly, my church is happy clappy. You know, your southern <laughs> accent always sounds like Lindsey Graham. I just oh, wish you to say that. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's really close. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much Fred. And so we're sitting down to dinner, and here, you know, Peter's a very nice guy, but he's a very erudite scholar, too, you know, PhD from Cambridge and very sharp guy. And so Fred looks over at him, and, and they're talking about something about movies. And, um, and so Fred says, you know, you know what my favorite movie is? And uh, Peter's like, no, what? He goes, The Wizard of Oz. And they end up going on for, I don't know, for quite a while about wh how the wizard, what the theological dimensions of The Wizard of Oz are. So apparently there's some great, you know, theological treasures in The Wizard of Oz. And um, that was quite a, quite a conversation wow. between That's Fred it. and Peter. You know, um, as, as I, as, as we're talking and, and, um, as I'm thinking about this idea of Christian worldview, you know, one of the things that strikes me, I mean, I try, you know, I've tried to live that way as well and think that way. Um, you know, my politics would be left of center, though, because I'm a Christian, and I think he probably 
probably feel the same way. You know, no party can have my soul because nothing ever quite fits in line. But Jim Jordan once said, I was having lunch with Jordan at Greg's house, and he said, he was talking about Philip Dick's novels. And he, I mean, Jordan is a polymath. He says, now, Philip was a man of the left with a morality that we, though, would recognize as Christian. I think Jordan would say the same thing about you. You're a man of the left who's, who's read, but who, you know, Jordan could see in you a morality he could recognize as Christian. Well, that, that makes me feel so much better about my soul. Uh, but I guess the question is, um, where would you place yourself? You know, because I, I think a lot of, if I have to pick, you know, it's hard for me to pick, you know, where I'm totally aligned. But a lot of, for instance, Catholic social teachings are, are things that I find a lot of affinity to. And that's part of what leads me frequently uh, to vote left to center. So, I mean, as you, as you look at the, you know, uh, the Catholic project, I mean, and that's kind of the, you know, the, of Thomas Aquinas and, and, you know, his modern followers, uh, how do you see yourself in relationship to, um, you know, a Catholic worldview, which, you know, you mentioned Roe v. Wade and, you know, that, you know, fundamentalist and Catholic standing together in pro-life rallies, I think had a profound positive change um, that, you know, began to melt some of that anti-Catholicism that was so rampant in a lot of Protestantism, although this latest controversy with, uh, with the Pope and Trump, uh, I, I, it's kind of funny that anti-Catholicism has raised its head again in certain Christian circles. So I just kind of respond to that. I'm not sure if I'm asking you a question, but does it make sense what I'm at least... Uh, trying to get at? Well, I do think that, you know, given my experience, again, my limited experience, but I, I was raised in the South and went to a Baptist church for many years and then was followed Christ in college and kind of got into the Bible church world and then slowly became more and more uh, Protestant, reformed in my outlook and became a PCA minister in the late 90s and then uh, came here. So my that's my limited experience. But for for the fundamentalist world that I was part of for a while, I mean, Roman Catholics were the enemy. Uh, now I would say, I'll put it this way, a few years ago we had family come up, um, spend time with us. They were part of our uh, church down south uh, many years before. We had a great time with them, and he, he had been hearing, you know, from about what we were doing in our church and about the, you know, the way we do. And of course, we use a fairly Anglican liturgy, I wear a white robe, and so forth. We mark the church calendar. And I guess he was kind of concerned, like, well, you know, what about the what about the Roman Catholics? And I just said to him, I'm more concerned about the Baptists now than the Roman Catholics, believe it or not. You know, because I, 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 I see the evangelical world really losing its, its grounding, um, both theologically and just knowing where we are on the map. I don't fear that so much for you know, the the larger communions like the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, as much as I fear that for just evangelicalism. It just seems like evangelicalism is often adrift. And so that's where I've come to now. You know, in, in the last 10 years, I have more um, just, I guess, compliance with with the Roman Catholic view. I think they're holding the line on lots of things that, you know, evangelicalism is giving up. Yeah, in some ways, evangelicalism in some quarters of the country has devolved into the worst excesses of medieval Catholicism. They're legalistic. It creates a lot of uncertainty. Am I saved or not? 
they're in superstition, relics, prayer of Jabez. I mean, really, a lot of evangelicals would be happier as superstitious medieval well, Catholic. Well, and yeah, and I think you know, there's always a drift towards folk religion, whatever, whatever that may be. And what may have been superstitious in the you know 16th century is me and the good Lord now in the in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I, the other example. I recently went, um, had a Sunday off, and I went to a local church. It was a mega church in our area. This is a church where they have multiple sites and so forth. It was really sad to me because though the music was good, the vi- you know there was vibrancy, there was a lot of people there. There was really nothing that was strongly rooted to the gospel itself. There was a strong message about good works, very practically helpful to people. And in a, in a context where you had the Eucharist or you had a straightforward gospel presentation, that sermon would have been perfectly in order. But when you only preach do good works and you don't give the rationale and the gospel behind it, if, that, if that's what you're being fed week after week and you're pretty much going to a rock concert as far as the worship goes, I don't see how that's going to form people spiritually. And it's so well marketed, right? There's so much marketing in it. I don't know how people are going to be sustained by that because either they're going to get very cynical, you know, pull away, or they're going to have to sort of get through that and do some, you know, get their spiritual nourishment from some other context, whether it's more private, small group type settings or, or something else. But so when I see that as an example, that really gives me a sense that, well, I could definitely be ministered to better in the mass, you know, than that. Because at least you have yeah. Yeah. the formation of the gospel. Now, of course, I couldn't commune in the Roman Catholic Church. That's their fault. Um, they can commune in my church, by the way. They're, they're welcome to the table. Right. No, no I, I, it's funny. I was uh, going to an emerging church for a while when I was not pastoring, going you know, back and forth between an emerging church and, uh, and a liberal Episcopalian church. Uh, well, whatever that means. Uh, that may be liberal Episcopalian. That may well, be a, re- that's a, redundancy, that's a redundancy. I'm sorry. But, you know. The gospel, there was much more gospel and scripture every week at the Episcopal Church. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, you know, whether or not what everybody was getting, but the gospel was clearly proclaimed every week in the great Thanksgiving and in all the yes, scripture readings. Exactly. Greg, thanks, th- thanks, for, thanks for spending some time with us. I, in closing, I just, I'd like to tell a story about worshiping in your church. I mean, when I first visited your church, I, I remember I loved it. I mean, I thought I, a very fine sermon. I, I like the worship culture, but. Something happened. Um, I don't know if you all still do this, but you chanted the Lord's Prayer, and everybody raised their hands, you know, like uh, you know, up to their shoulders, like the ancient church's prayer posture. Yeah. And in, fr- in front of me was a family that had, clearly had four adopted kids, all of them that had the same formity. None of them had hands. And to see these four kids with their parents raising their hands chanting the Lord's Prayer was what worship ought to be by grace, a foretaste of what's to come at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I, I thank you for um, stewarding and cultivating that culture and for, for that moment. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. That is a highlight in our service, and it's so wonderful to look out and see little children just participating in that. I got one more anecdote on this one because this was a very moving point to me. I went over to Russia and Ukraine for a few weeks in 2012. And we were in Ukraine. We met with a number of ministry leaders that were interested in coming into the CRC. Since then, we've had a number of churches come 
into um, into our communion from the from Ukraine. And it's been wonderful to get to know these brothers. But there was a special. It was a ministry leader. He was kind of a missions outreach coordinator, and he had a birthday. And in this town in Ukraine, he had he had cultivated a friendship, a long friendship with a Roman Catholic priest. And so at this event, there were about twenty guys, four of whom were Roman Catholic priests. One of them was an Eastern Rite Catholic priest, and and everybody else was a Reformed minister. So everybody else was a Presbyterian. So we had this wonderful Ukrainian dinner, and they did it upright. They were singing, doing folk songs, and it was very rich. But at one point, the the priest said, "We want to sing something from our liturgy," and they began to sing. It was in Ukrainian, but it was, "Our Father." Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, which is exactly the tune that we use, right? So we use an ancient, ancient tune of uh, from from plain song chant for uh, for the Lord's Prayer, and it was so moving to me that here we are separated by continents and amazing cultural differences, and every, you know, and obviously they're Roman Catholic and so forth, and yet we have a unity in doing that. Now, that was a very moving thing for me to to get that. We'd been doing that for a few years before that happened. Greg, man, may your tribe increase. Yes. Thank you, Greg. Thank you guys. God bless. Tell me everything is alright. Kissing-